if I didn't speak up and these kids ended up taking their lives, just like that copycat suicide in the high school, I couldn't have lived with myself. And that's what catapulted me into saying, I have got to talk about this. Hey everybody, welcome back to Tales from the Journey. I'm Stephanie Zamara and today we're here with Lark Galley who has an incredible story of really turning suicide loss into her purpose, which is something that's very near and dear to my heart for those of you that know my story. And she has an incredible book that we're going to talk about as well. But Lark, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Stephanie. I appreciate this opportunity to share with your listeners. Yeah, I would love to start by you sharing just a little bit more about what it is that you do. Well, what I do now is completely different from what I did 21 months ago. I have several businesses. I call myself a serial entrepreneur and I have a trucking company and then I did business consulting, etc. But all of that sort of changed when my 19-year-old son took his life March of 2019. And if you had told me before then that I would be talking about suicide prevention and being very active in that community, even writing a book about it, I would have said, no way, I am not. I'm not going to talk about that because when my father died of suicide two years before my son, I couldn't talk about it. Even some of my best friends didn't know that that's how he actually died. And when my son died, I started to go there and things happened and I caught myself before I really went into a dark depression. So fast forward now, I'm doing quite a bit in that arena. And even though I own my own businesses still, you know, with the trucking, et cetera, I don't spend very much time in that. And that's really not where... I, my heart is. My heart is in helping families, parents heal relationships and try to improve things before it's too late. Yeah, absolutely. And such important work. Well, take us back. I mean, two suicide losses in such a short amount of time can really impact who you are. But who was the lark before your dad passed away? What was life like? So I type A, very driven. I came out of the corporate world where, of course, I was the best at everything, right? I was the, I won the worldwide sales, executive sales award one year for my global company. I mean, you know, you're talking about someone who I had nannies raise my kids, live in nannies. I was out traveling the world, all over the world, and just going after it and getting my my life, you know, my dreams accomplished. When my kids started to become teenagers, I'm like, ah, they might need a little more supervision, right? <laughs> so I left the corporate world. I went into my own businesses that I, that I had set up. And once again, you know, really out there, very structured in my life, very structured in my children's life, not very compassionate about anyone, including the kids, if they didn't get their jobs done, if they didn't, you know, toe the line, all the expectations, right? All the things we want for our children. And now completely different. I parent differently from the way I did before my son's death. I'm more compassionate, slow down, not as aggressive. I still have goals, but they're completely different. They're not centered around, oh, let me get the next biggest house or the fastest car or go on this big trip. When gift giving time comes up, whether it's the holidays or my birthday, my kids will say, what do you want? And I'm like, I don't really want anything. Just completely separated from the material things in life. It's not that I was driven by those before, but you know, they were always like worthwhile goals to go after and get. And now it's like, just want to spend time with my family and do those things that are important to me, like talking about suicide prevention. And in those couple of years between your father and then your son, what was your process for dealing with the grief? I know you said you, it's not something that you talked about, about how it happened, but did you have any process yet for really facing your grief? 
Not really. And I didn't even realize this at the time. It wasn't until I looked back that for five months after my father died, he died in January and I took over his trucking business and I had to go in and do different meetings with the client and just trying to figure things out, this transition. I would take notes and then I would come home and two days later, I would look at the notes and I would think, I don't know what those notes mean. That's my handwriting, but I don't even remember being in the meeting. And you know, for someone who considers myself, you know, fairly intelligent and like, go get it. There wasn't this, Hey, just put your big girl pants on and just power through it. That There was no powering through it. It was just a matter of, of trying to figure out what can I even do today? How do I even cope? What even happens? And that was new for me. And it was kind of dark. You know, I don't remember how my kids got fed. I don't remember day-to-day things. I just sort of drifted along until, you know, some time passed. Yeah, I so relate to that. Everything was a blur. And and I personally had PTSD from my suicide loss. And so I just brain stopped working, stopped being able to track or make sense of time. And, And we don't realize that sudden bereavement can cause PTSD and can cause especially grief, like the brain fog piece is a huge part of that. You know, and if you're used to accomplishing big goals, you know, you tell yourself, just do it. And really, there's, you're totally questioning your motivation. Okay, what will motivate me? to move forward? Or how can I even get out of bed? How can I even comprehend all of these emotions and this loss and the unanswered questions, especially around a suicide, right? Questions that we are never going to get answers to that just eat at us for sure. In that two-year period leading up to your son's death, were there any signs? Were there any conversations? Was it sudden and unexpected? It was unexpected when he passed away, but there were some signs earlier. What happened was when he was about 15, almost 16, he was starting his sophomore year. His father was having a conversation, you know, the parental conversation about, you know, these high school grades count. If you want to get into the engineering program at the university, like you want to do, you you need to buckle down, you need to focus. And my husband's ex-military. So you can only imagine, you know, 35 (laughs) years in the military, it was very structured, very strict. And he saw my son sort of disengage. And because of the training my husband had had in suicide prevention, he had the strength to say, are you feeling suicidal? And my son answered honestly and said, yes, I am. So my husband came to me and he said, Christian is feeling suicidal. Will you stay with him, please? I'm going to call the military hotline for suicide and get an appointment with a therapist set up, which he did. We got my son into a therapist the next day. I think all of us go through a time where we think, oh, I want life to be over. But there's a difference between thinking that and actually coming up with a plan to end your life, right? And my son at 15, almost 16, had come up with a plan. So I said, okay, let's kind of work this through. Are you going to be able to make it through the night? We have an appointment set up. And and my son assured me, yes, he could make it through. So the next day I took him into the therapist. They were in there for about an hour. And then I was called in. And the therapist said to my son, do you want to tell your mom or should I? And of course, I'm all curious, like what's going on? And he said, no, I'll tell her. And he looked at me and he said, mom, I don't believe in God. I believe in science. He's very analytical mind, right? And I said, well, son, I believe God is science, but if that's what you choose to believe, I can't make you believe anything, right? And he looked at me like he's expecting me to be angry because he told me this. And I had some regrets about that. I look back at that and think what had happened in our household that he didn't feel comfortable telling me that on his own. Second of all, it hit me that as parents, we need to be prepared for those times when our kids come to us with things that maybe we don't want to hear. Um, Mom, I got my 
girlfriend pregnant or mom, I'm gay or whatever it is, right? How are we going to handle that? Are we going to say, well, you know, kick them out of the house? Or are we going to say, okay, you've made some choices. How can I support you? And just because we support our children doesn't necessarily mean we accept their life choices, but as a parent, we can still support and guide them, not dictate to them. Now, having said all that, that's not always the way I parented in the past. I would just say that right now, right? And so for the next couple months, my son would go to the therapist. They would work out a plan. If you're feeling suicidal, what can you do? I can call a friend. I can talk to my parents. I can go to the hospital. He came up with a plan. And after about two months of, of this, he said, mom, I'm good. I got this. I don't need to go anymore. And my biggest regret is that from the day he told me, mom, I've got this until three years later when he took his own life. I never had another mental wellness conversation with him. And even the high school, two cities over, they had like a rash of suicides. I think there was a 10 suicides that happened within just a couple months. And my thought was, oh no, that's out there. That's in other people's homes. That's not in our home. Even though my father had died by suicide, which I didn't know this at the time, increases another member, family member's chance of suicide by 50%. I still clung to that belief that that was outside my house. And that's the wake up call I want to give parents is that it is a lot closer than you think. Statistically speaking, if we have not been impacted by suicide, we will be because it's the number two killer of youth and young adults in the nation, which is really scary because it doesn't have to happen. And that's the hard part. What was your experience? It sounds like his passing really shifted a lot for you and kind of helped you maybe even like reprioritize and assess your values and, and lifestyle. But talk to us about what that process was like. Because I, I know, at least for me, that wasn't an instantaneous thing. No, no, it wasn't. And it, it, a lot of it had to do with some things that had happened early in my life, my, my upbringing, which I write about in my book and how my father was undiagnosed bipolar, which created a lot of instability in my life growing up, right? So there was that in my background, my father's suicide. Then when my son died by suicide, I started to go to that black hole. I mean, I felt myself right on the edge of just wanting to go into the dark hole, not get out of bed, not do anything, just ghost, right? And I looked around at my family, at my husband who was devastated military man. I'd seen him cry twice in his life. And one of those was at his mom's funeral. He cried for three days. He was devastated, barely functioning. He lost, I think it was 15 pounds in the first week. He just stopped eating. And uh, then my, my daughters and my other son, they, they were all struggling as well. And I was concerned that if I went into that dark hole, when I came out, I might not have a spouse. I might not have one of my other children. And that was part of what sort of kept me from falling off the edge. The other thing is that I got a call from three different parents from friends of mine talking to me about the loss of my son and also about their teenagers who knew my son. And they expressed their concerns about how they were on suicide watch with one of their children. Another one, their daughter had attempted the year before. And another one, they were watching him so concerned that he might choose that as well. And because these kids knew my son, I realized something that the situation that happened was not about me. It was not about why didn't I do a better job as a parent? Why didn't I know? Why didn't I see? It wasn't about my son and his struggles. It was about my voice and being able to speak up to help these other children. Because I can't control if they take their life or not, but what can I control? 
I can control myself. And if I didn't speak up and these kids ended up taking their lives, just like that copycat suicide in the high school, I couldn't have lived with myself. And that's what catapulted me into saying, I have got to talk about this. This is critical. It is an epidemic. And I started talking about it and I became very vocal. Like it was a passion. It, I could not stop talking about it. My, my family was a little bit like, mom, <laughs> a little too much. And I'm like, it's not too much. It's not too much. If we can save one person, it is not too much. Yeah, it's so interesting. After my loss, I had almost a compulsion uh, to to just write about what I was going through. And I couldn't have told you why at the time. And it having run a business before and using social media for that, like it wasn't even I didn't think about marketing, it wasn't strategic. It was just like, I have to put out here what I am experiencing. And it's so critical, like you're saying for other people to know a, that they're not alone, like anyone who has suffered a loss like yours and mine, and that it's grief and healing is messy, but also to like bring so much more awareness to the fact that so many people battle with suicidal thoughts and urges and feelings. And, and it's not something that we talk about enough. Well, with my father's death, I felt all the shame and stigma of a suicide, right? And I started to feel that with my son, which is why I didn't want to talk about it. But then I'm like, no, I have got to talk about it. And I found that the more I talked about it, the more people felt safe in coming to me and sharing with me. And I was blown away by the people who told me I attempted years ago. They were professionals. They seemed like they had life together. Another person told me I was in the hospital earlier this year because I attempted. What? You know, I didn't even know that that's why she was in the hospital. And over and over again, I heard these stories from people that I'm, they were suffering with suicide ideation. And I thought, if we don't talk about this, then what happens is that those are, who are suffering think they're even more isolated and more alone because then they're thinking, I'm the only one who thinks this way, which is not true. Nope. No, nope, we're never alone. We're never the only one. What was it like for you to to start having those conversations? Like, what were you speaking about? Where were you doing it and with who? I started like just doing it in the grocery store. <laughs> like, <laughs> or I would see people and, you know, it's one of those things where a, lo- a lot of people in my sphere knew that my son died, but what do they say? You know what I mean? They felt awkward. And so I want, I, I knew they wanted to talk about it and I wanted to take away the awkward conversation. So I would just say, I imagine you've heard that my son died by suicide and they would say, say yes. And then I would, I would bring it up so that they could feel comfortable bringing it up. That's, that was really important to me. The other thing is I wanted to talk about my son. I enjoyed talking to people who knew him that sort of kept him alive and, and reminded us of the fun times and the good times. Then I just started thinking, okay, where can I get my message out in a bigger way? And that's where I started going out to podcasts. So I've been on in the last year, I've been on over 40 podcasts around the world talking about this issue because to me it is so important. And then, um, this flash of inspiration came and said, you need to write a book. And I'm like, no, <laughs> not, not a book, <laughs> you know, cause you can just imagine I started, it took me probably a year and a half to, to start doing this, you know, the whole book thing, because I would start to write and then I would put it aside and then I'd pick it up again and I'd put it aside because it was very emotional. And then when the book came back earlier this year from my editor, she's like, yeah, you need to put more dialogue. And I'm like, no, I was avoiding (laughs) that, right? So for two days, I would put in the conversations that I had with the police officer, with my son, with other people that, you know, really the emotional part. And I was crying for two days when I'm putting this in. And the editor said, now your audience can connect with you. That's 
what I hear feedback from people is like, I couldn't put this book down. They were just so enthralled with what was going to happen next and how, how had I processed going through this and how was my family processing this and what was the outcome and did I see and all of these things. And that, that's what people wanted to know is, could this happen in their lives and what could they do to prevent it? Absolutely. You know, my memoir came out in January 2020, and it took five years total to get it out and four before I could really start writing it. But I think people hold our books and they're like, wow, so cool. And it's like, (laughs) it almost killed me. Like it was so healing and cathartic, but it's like, you don't realize like I cried through every chapter writing it. And like, it's, it's such an intense process. It is. It is very intense. And, you know, especially if it's that kind of topic, right? The suicide or something that's, that's really heavy. And I felt even though it was heavy and hard, it was something that needed to be told. It was so important. And Richard Paul Evans, who's a 41-time best New York bestselling author who wrote The Christmas Box House, he's a friend of mine, and he actually wrote the foreword for me. He was very kind. He didn't necessarily want me to self-publish, you know? And I'm like, well, Richard, you know, you're here, I'm down here. <laughs> and the whole process of actually pick, getting picked up by a publisher, it can take a year and a half, you know, at, at the minimum. And by the time they pick you up, then it's almost another year before your book gets out. And I felt this urgency urgency. This has, this message needs to get out to the world. And and looking back now, I realize with 2020 and all of the isolation and the shutdown that only contributed to the suicides that they've skyrocketed worldwide. And I thought, this is why my message is so timely. So many people are hurting and worried and just not knowing what their future holds. I mean, the, like I said, the young adults, they're the ones who's rates are skyrocketing. They're, they're in school. They're not in school, right? Or they're trying to find a job and there's nothing available and the uncertainty, maybe they have student loan debt or whatever. They want to get married and they can't get married because nobody can come to the wedding and all of these things. It's just uncertain and it contributes to these feelings that they have that, well, maybe life's too hard and I should just be done. What was your process like? You know what? What I love about doing these interviews in this show is is there's such a variety, and that's part of what I want to show is that there's no one right path to healing or growth or finding your purpose, and and no one right timeline. And so for me, like my purpose has deepened since my loss and in so many different ways, but it took a lot of time for me to really uncover that. And it sounds like from what you've shared that that really got activated rather quickly, rather soon after. And so my question is around what it has, what has it been like for you to navigate that process of stepping into this new purpose path and work while also grieving? It's actually been a little bit scary, you know, because uh, some days I'm really strong and like my voice is strong and I'm very passionate. And then there are other days where I'm just struggling. Like I don't want to, I don't want to do anything related to it or talk about it or do anything or just the grief that overcomes me sometimes. And so I always say, I allow that grief and I don't try to push it down. And I say, I don't know who's going to show up today, especially in the beginning. And I would do these, these talks for people and, you know, it was mostly via Zoom, doing conferences. And uh, I would just say, just so you know, and be prepared, I don't know who's going to show up. And sometimes, you know, real strong person showed up and sometimes the person that was crying in front of everybody. And I'm like, that's just the way it is. And I allow it. And then my grief was a little bit different from the other family members. Like my husband and one of my daughters has not read my book. It's too much for them. Rather than 
trying to push them, which I tried to do in the beginning, push them through this grief cycle, I've had to allow them to be where they are. And also they've had to allow me to be very vocal and to find my healing by helping other people. So while there have been tough days talking about, you know, what could I have done differently as a parent? What are some signs that we can watch for? How can as children, you know, these youth, what can you do that's going to strengthen your knowingness that you have value and that it's important for you to stick around because things are hard right now, maybe in your life, but it can change and it can get better and it won't always be like that. We really lose perspective. I feel like when we get in those hopeless places and I was suicidal when I was younger, um, about 12 years old and you do like you just it feels like this is all there is and will ever Mm -hmm. be and it's not true but it's really challenging to step outside of that i mean look at that you were 12 parents say oh it's too they're too young to talk about it and i'm thinking no they are exposed youth are exposed to so much right now things that my generation never had right the whole social media so think about this and i try to explain this to parents think about the most embarrassing thing in high school that happened to you Maybe five, 10 people knew, right? Okay, if your child is in school and social media is involved and something embarrassing happens, 100, 1,000, 10,000 people, so they feel like their life is over. And so as parents, we need to help them understand that nothing that happens outside, not with their friends, not on social media, not with grades, not with anything that they might do that's stupid because of course, you know, they're (laughs) young, they're going to do stupid things. Nothing is worth taking their life and that you will stand beside them and help them through as they try to navigate their choices and the consequences that come with them. So important. That gives me goosebumps. (laughs) So one thing that we talk a lot about on this show is reorienting, the process of reorienting. And I would imagine it sounds like you're still in that because especially with grief, it's such an ongoing process. I mean, I'm six years out and I'm still like, oh, look at that. Like, here's another place that I can't be who I was before. And so what has it been like for you to really reorient to yourself and like who you are in the world and this work that you're doing while still having a foot in the life that you had before? What's interesting is that I react differently. You know, if if things in my businesses come up and that in the past might've upset me And I'm like, no, we'll work it out. It's okay. And it's not the end of the world. And because of COVID, there was a situation where my partner was was out with COVID and then the supervisor was had come in contact and he was thinking that he might have to go out. And so the rest of the drivers, you know, it it would have been a situation where they could not have worked. And my partner was a little bit stressed about this. And I'm like, you know what, Brian? It's okay. Whatever happens, happens. It's not the end of the world because I've seen the end of the world. And being shut down for a couple days is not it, right? And so I'm able to step back and look at things with a different perspective and say, is this really something worth losing your mind about? It's not. For the most part, I promise you, it's not. You know, I used to be very aggressive driver, very, you know, (laughs) next step, next step, and always like kind of intense with my kids. And now I'm like, what do you want to do, honey? (laughs) You know, how can I support you? And, And allowing them to be who they are going to be and not try to dictate their path. Has that felt like a natural, like all of that is a natural shift for you? It, you know, it has felt like a natural shift, but it was not natural before my son's death. But now because of the grief, I feel like I've changed at my DNA level. Like it has changed me to my core and I just don't have that aggression come out like I used to have. It's just, it's not there. 
which is weird. You know, I'm like, oh, I'm showing up as a completely different person. <laughs> this is weird. <laughs> yeah, I write about I wrote about that in my book, and I talk about that a lot. Like, I was altered at my core in an yes. instant, and like some things just about me just vanished, and they've never come back. Yeah. Like, they're not like lying on the floor for me to pick up or reclaim. No. They're just gone. No, they're gone. And you know, I tell people this. I regret several things about my son's death. And, and if I could make things different, I would. What I don't regret is the person I have become going through this process. I am just a softer, more compassionate, more loving and kind person. And I think that that's what we're here on earth to become is like the best versions of ourselves. It's not to acquire the most. It's to have the best relationships we can with those people around us. Yeah, that's such an interesting thing. I I talk a lot about the duality of loss. Like same thing. I love who I've become. I love my life now. I love who's in it. I love the work that I get to do and the people I get to do it with. And I'm very aware that I would not be here doing this work had he not died. And so every time I feel that immense gratitude, there's also a whole lot of grief. And I'd love to hear your own experience around that. Well, in the beginning, when my son died, my thoughts would often go to, well, if he hadn't, or if he were still here. And that's what happens a lot in grief. We think about the what ifs, right? And I noticed that whenever I started with that one thought, that's what would spiral me down very, very quickly. And I had to actively stop that thought. It wasn't easy, especially in the beginning, but for the sake of my mental well-being and my happiness and my ability to show up for the rest of my family and for other people, I realized that I had to be mentally tough, mentally strong, not to go there. Because whenever that thought would come up, well, if he hadn't, then I would say, stop. You are not in the universe that you can go back and change events. That is not logical. It is not possible. My mind would argue, but what if, but what if? And I'm like, no, stop. And it was by actively doing that, that I would say, I can't change the past. I can only change the future. So what am I going to do now that my son has passed that will improve the future? That's all I can do. And sometimes, you know, the the thoughts, the what if will come up, but they're not as many. Yep. That's a challenging one. And I I love that advice. I mean... (sighs) it's always available to us to choose different thoughts and choose different beliefs. And you're right that it's so challenging in the moment and it takes a lot of intention and practice. (laughs) Yeah, it does. You know, and it's not the easy way, but it's sort of like in life, we can do easy now, hard later. We can do hard now, easy later. And that's what I chose to do hard at the beginning, hard and now it's easier for me to talk about it. It's, it's easier for me to see a bigger picture. Before my son's death, we did not have a very good relationship. He was, he was argumentative with me. He was sweet boy to everybody else, but not mom, right? And, and we butted heads like every day of our life. And now I feel closer to him than before his death. Because as I share his story of, you know, I'm sure he wished he had made a different decision. I feel him close to me. I feel him supporting me. And that's what sustains me. What kind of support did you have? Like we talk a lot about the role of mentors, and that doesn't necessarily mean external mentors. It does a lot of times. It can also be like our own internal mentors, whether that's our intuition or our relationship with the universe or God or spirit. But what kind of support did you have, if any? I had a lot of friends reach out to me and a lot of them were in the healing community. So uh, one was a quasi business, like personal coach that I had been working with him. Uh, He helped me through some very practical exercises, writing a letter to my son and then having my son write back to me. Right. 
And I did that. And I put my letter in my son's coffin when he, when he passed away. Then I had another friend who does some, and I don't even know the name of it, but it's like, it's, it's like, it's sort of a tapping. It's some, the eye rapid eye movement and all of that. She did, she did some things for me with that. Also with my husband, that helped a lot. And like my husband says, I don't know, I can't explain it, but you know, a lot of that pain is gone. And I'm like, well, that's what we want. So there was that. And then just having that intuition, you know, when I decided to take on this huge task of telling the world that wake up, I told God, I am not a doctor. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a counselor. I am just a concerned mother, but I will do whatever you tell me to do. And so then it was like, I would see these different inspired action things. Oh, beyond other people's podcasts would come to me. And I'm like, okay, I guess we're doing that. And then write a book. And and I was like, no, not write a book. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, (laughs) because I had committed to doing whatever was brought into my path. Yeah. And so that's, that's my steps. They're not always easy steps, but I've committed to doing them. And you mentioned God. What was your relationship to faith? before and like throughout all of this? I have a very strong foundation with faith and and believing that there is a higher power and that there is a purpose to our life. When uh, years ago, I had been married to another man before my current husband, he left me six months pregnant, left and moved out of the country, never to be seen again, right? And during that time, I was very devastated. I would say almost suicidal if I hadn't been pregnant with a very wanted child, I'd been through three years of infertility, I probably would have ended my life because I just didn't see the big picture. Looking back, I sort of laugh. I'm like, you know, he was not even worth losing tears about, right? And then later meeting my husband and looking back on that, I had such a security that God would help me through the hardest things. As I'm going through this with my son, not having all the answers, but knowing that just having that faith that I know he helped me in the past, I know that it will be okay. And I know that I can have the strength and faith to move forward. And that's, that's really what has sustained me through all of this. Talk to us about, you've got this book and you're out on podcasts, which you're amazing at this. What do you feel is next with this conversation that you're having and this work that you're doing? Well, the book has just been out for a month and I will tell you that, you know, for, for a year, it was my focus. And when it came out, it was not even out for a week. And suddenly I kind of had these, this grief, this overwhelming grief come over me. And I'm like, well, my book's done. My message is out there. If somebody wants to read it, they can read it. I can kind of be done with life. I don't need to stick around. I'm done. And I felt that so strongly. And I went to my mentor, Richard Paul Evans, who wrote the foreword. And I told him, I said, do you feel this way after you write a book? He's like, no, because first of all, mine are nonfiction. (laughs) Excuse me, that mine are fiction. His are stories, right? And second of all, he said, writing the book is what kills me, not being done with the book. (laughs) And, And he just helped me realize that there was so much more my, my mission was not just around writing this book. It's now moving forward. And so my next step is I want to put the book into an audible format, uh, which I will read. And that will be a great, awesome emotional experience <laughs> so that more people can have it worldwide, right? And, and they can get the message easier. The other thing is I want to go into corporations and bring it in more as a, a workplace conversation. Let's talk about mental wellness. Let's talk about if your employees are grieving how are you going to like 
help them cope with their loss and, and try to motivate them at all because they're the things that motivated them before are they're not going to work now you know giving them a raise doesn't do it right and and then maybe if you as the boss are going through some grief how do you cope with what's called corporate grief how do you deal with that how can you motivate your troops when you're not motivated yourself and then um, go into schools more I want to I want to do that to talk to parents and to kids so I keep reminding myself there's still a lot of work to do and there are a lot of people that need to be reached. So I'm working through influencers who are in each of those arenas and saying, okay, I'm ready to you know, focus my efforts on this. Now that the book is done, now I want to, to go out and move beyond what I've done so far. Oh, that's incredible. We kind of wrap up our conversation. I have two questions for you. And one is the one that I, I kind of ask everyone at the end, which is, what is one thing that you wish you had known two, four, five years ago, or even younger? I would say, first of all, I would have wished I had known that suicide was the number two killer of youth nationwide. I, I thought I was a good parent. I thought I tried to address and help my kids as best I could, but I missed that huge piece. I wish I'd had those conversations. That's one wish, one regret. The other one is I, I regret not trying to improve the relationship my son, with my son from an earlier age. You know, we get so caught up in being busy. I always thought, oh, it'll be better when he moves out and gets married and has a family. Then he'll understand, you know, why I've tried to parent him and, and try to help him become independent and, and do things in life that he needs to do. I didn't have that opportunity. And so we always think, oh, it'll get better later on. Well, I promise you it won't get better later on. Address it and address it as early as you can. Absolutely. Final question. You've shared a lot of great wisdom. What is one final or any final things you would want to share with anyone at any age that is feeling suicidal and hopeless? I would want to remind them that they are very much needed. And I give this, this story. Before my son's passing away, I had come into contact with three different mentors of mine. All three of them earlier in their lives, in their careers, had all come up with a plan to kill themselves to the point where they were just about to execute that and somebody intervened and caught them by divine intervention. And I think about that because then years later, when I needed them, they came into my life to help me at very different critical junctures in my life. And I want to tell people who are struggling that you are that person, that coach, that mentor for someone else. Hang on one more day, just stay in the game because someone down the road Someone that you might love very much is going to need you. And if you end your life prematurely, you will not be there when they need you the most. It gives me goosebumps. Well, we're going to put links to all of your amazingness in the show notes, but please tell everyone where they can find you, how they can learn from you, and how they can work with you. My website is larkdeangalley.com, and I actually have a tab on there for resources because so many people were saying, okay, I'm aware about suicide. Now what do I do? And I thought, well, okay, now what do we do? So I've been doing a, some work with a, a licensed psychologist, and we put together some courses. You can take you know, a free, uh, there's, I think it's a dollar trial for a week to get some amazing course information. I love what he teaches about parenting. And there's also courses on suicide and what can you do if you're feeling suicidal. There's also a mental wellness test. People can take that and kind of assess their mental wellness and what can they do for that. And, and then other resources on there. Also where you can buy my book, but my book is also on Amazon. It's called Learning to Breathe Again, Choosing to Heal After Losing a Loved One to Suicide. Such a great title. Well, Lark, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your story and all of your wisdom. I so appreciate you being here. Thanks, Stephanie. And, and best of luck to you in sharing these stories and uplifting other people as well. 
Thank you so much for joining us today and for being a part of this powerful community of purpose-driven individuals. We have a ton of free resources for you at www.talesfromthejourney.tv free, including access to my signature process for how to make the impossible happen, packaged in a simple, easy-to-follow workbook that you can implement immediately. Whether you're trying to heal in the aftermath of a challenging chapter, working to uncover your purpose, or going after anything else that feels impossible, you'll learn how to take an entirely different kind of action that goes against much of what you've been taught about manifestation and goal achievement. We'd love your help in getting the message out and growing our community, so please take a moment to share this episode, subscribe to the podcast, and leave us a review on iTunes. 